This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Olivia Aguilar from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Judge Frederick Block, author of Crimes and Punishments, Entering the Mind of a Sentencing Judge. Judge Block was appointed United States District Judge for the Eastern District of New York in 1994. After 25 years on the bench, Judge Block continues to maintain a full caseload. He also regularly sits by designation on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where he has authored over a dozen opinions. Judge Block recently authored the reality fiction novel, Race to Judgment, after having written his highly acclaimed memoir, Disrobed, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge. Today, Judge Block discusses our criminal justice system's important sentencing issues, the thoughts that enter his mind during the course of trials, and some of the cases he talks about in the book. Judge Block, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. So um, to get started, um, the book is broken up into seven chapters. Could you kind of discuss the writing process and how did you decide what cases you wanted to include in the book? Well, the seven uh, cases do represent each a different type of scenario dynamics. Uh, and uh, so that's how it came out to seven. So we have a chapter that's devoted to mandatory minimums. We have a chapter that speaks about acquitted conduct being a sentencing consideration, uncharged criminal conduct. We have a chapter dealing with uh, how we go about sentencing a high-profile uh, official. We have, of course, the last chapter we talk about sentencing uh, with collateral consequences. And we have one dealing with uh, serious you know, sex crimes and victim impacts testimony. So what I tried to do was to give the reader an opportunity to understand the different categorical aspects of sentencing. And that's what each chapter represents. So that's basically how it came to seven. I could have probably written another couple of them. And uh, as far as why I wrote the book, uh, I just celebrated my 25th anniversary as a federal court judge. Wow. Uh, and wow. I realized yeah, that after all these years, there were a lot of thoughts that sort of accumulated uh, in my head that I thought uh, I should share with the public uh, because sentencing is the sine qua non of being a district court judge or any judge because uh, 98% of all the cases that are disposed of in this country are disposed of on the district court level, and the district court judge is the only one that really sentences people. Uh, the circuit court doesn't do it. The Supreme Court doesn't do it. And there's no question that it is the most compelling, the most difficult, the most challenging a part of being a federal court judge. And I think that probably one of my colleagues would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So in the book, you address a lot of problems with the current sentencing system. Uh, in Chapter 1 and 2, you discuss how defendants can be sentenced for crimes for which they are not convicted and even for crimes for which they are acquitted. Could you kind of talk about both of those cases and then uh, their outcomes for our listeners? Well, you know, even sophisticated criminal defense lawyers are surprised to know 
that a judge, not talking about a jury now, that after a jury finds somebody guilty of a crime, the judge has this enormous sentencing discretion in certain areas, and in other areas, he has little sentencing discretion. So the book talks about all of that. Uh, and uh, when it comes to the enormous sentencing discretion, uh, people just can't believe that a judge can consider uh, uncharged criminal conduct in determining what the proper sentence should be, and also acquitted conduct. So I start the book in chapter one by talking about the remarkable dynamics of how the district court judge in that case, I was sitting on the Ninth Circuit reviewing that decision, uh, sentenced someone to uh, 230 months, if I recall correctly, basically almost 20 years or 25 years of imprisonment uh, just when the jury just convicted him of just credit card fraud, taking the credit cards of his wife. And the reason why is because there was compelling evidence where the judge concluded, not based upon what the jury found, but what was submitted to him during the sentencing dynamics, that he obviously killed his wife and used her credit cards. Mm -hmm. So uh, the defendant was never charged with that conduct, but the judge sentenced him as if he had been charged and convicted of basically murder. Uh, so when I tell that to people, and I start off the book by writing about that, it really gets your attention right away. Uh, and uh, yet that is a good example of the breadth and dimension of the powers of a sentencing judge. The second chapter deals with a similar dynamic. Uh, you can consider a uh, acquitted conduct, and I had a case, and I tell the story, these are all good stories, of a case that I had where the defendant was convicted of a minor crime, uh, but acquitted of murder. And I could have considered that because I thought that there was probably enough evidence in this case uh, where I could have made findings that he indeed was the person who killed this young man. I didn't do that. But I wonder whether or not it may have entered into my subconscious and maybe the sentence I gave for the minor crime was higher than I might have given if I wasn't aware of the fact that I thought this person probably did commit this murder. So those are two dynamics of sentencing that the public and even the profession does not really know much about. And I thought that that was a compelling way of introducing the reader to the book about the incredible discretion that a sentencing judge has. And I go on to talk about areas where there's very little discretion. So I think that answers your question, hopefully, Olivia, as to why I talk about uncharged conduct and acquitted conduct. It's not only educational, but it's informative, and the stories are compelling. So I try to write in a way which is not academic, that's not just for the bar, but that the general public will enjoy the book as well, uh, in addition to getting uh, a bit of an education about the sentencing laws that we live with. Hopefully that answers your first question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That That's definitely a through point through the book is, you know, how much discretion a judge has, has um, in sentencing. But also you talk about mandatory minimums and the three strikes law and kind of how a judge is supposed to navigate those. Could you kind of talk about those and what you write about in the book? So that's the flip side of what I just told you about, mm -hmm. where the judge has all this discretion, but there are large areas of the law where we don't have discretion, and we're just messenger girls and boys. Uh, and one, of course, is mandatory minimums. 
So Congress really has control over us because uh, in respect to any given crime that it establishes as a uh, crime that requires sentencing, uh, it can say the sentence should be a mandatory minimum of five years, 10 years, or 15 years. And uh, about 13% of the cases we get have mandatory minimums. A lot of drug cases, gun cases, now uh, it's in child pornography cases. And that's obviously a very troublesome thing. Nobody supports child pornography. Little children are being victimized. Uh, we all have a bad sense of that. But Congress has decided to take away the discretion of the judge, which is mm -hmm. our responsibility, and impose five-year mandatory minimums for possession, 10 years for receipt, 15 years for production, and those are helpful numbers. And regardless of what the individual dynamics are of the case, the judge has no sentencing discretion at all but to at least impose the mandatory minimum. I rail against that. I don't like it because I think those decisions are made for political reasons, maybe, uh, to aid a candidate in getting reelected because it's a sexy, literally and figuratively subject to campaign on. Uh, and uh, the uh, standard that we as judges use have nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with applying the rule of law and coming to a rational and reasonable sentence devoid of politics. So there's the flip side of what I just spoke about, where we have no discretion. And I also talk about the fact that the government has the discretion to decide how to indict somebody. So they think that the case is one where they should indict somebody that would carry a mandatory minimum, they make that decision. If they think that the case should not be a mandatory minimum case, then they can charge differently. Once again, the judge is on the receiving line. When I sentence somebody that has a mandatory minimum, I tell the defendant, I'm just the messenger boy. Uh, the government has sentenced you, uh, and I'm just delivering their a decision to you. Now, there are times, of course, when you could sentence somebody in excess of the mandatory minimum, but they're relatively few because the mandatory minimums are pretty high and pretty harsh by and large. So uh, mm -hmm. that's the flip side where we have no discretion. And I think it's an interesting dynamic to consider both those parallels. Yeah. And on that note, with this book, obviously, like you said, you talk about both sides uh, of that dynamic. But also you were hoping to raise awareness of some of these issues um, because the public doesn't know a lot about either issue. And you also state that you believe that it is your judicial responsibility to call attention to injustices that need to be fixed. And my question for you is, do you think that this openness that you've shown with the book is key to creating changes? Well, you know, there are two schools of thought here, and I think I'm in the minority school. Uh, most judges are very quiet. They just go about doing their work. They don't believe that they should be out there in the public forum, uh, that they should speak just through their decisions and what they say in court. And I respect that. Uh, but uh, the other school of thought, which I do subscribe to, uh, really was established by Judge Posner that he believed in openness. And I think a lot of great jurists believe in openness as well throughout the years. Cardozo wrote about uh, the judicial system in, in, in elaborate ways, and he was a great believer in communicating to the public. Uh, and I think that we do have a responsibility because otherwise the public is kept in object ignorance about what the judicial system is all about. 
And I think the public will have more respect for the judicial system if they see the judges as being caring about the humanity of the court and not just be people who are automatons just, you know, saying, here's what the sentence is and I'm not going to explain why and we don't much care about the public. I think we have a responsibility to so-called educate the public to give them a better awareness of what the judicial system is all about, how we go about doing our business. It puts a human face on the court and I think that's something which I is a good thing for the public to be exposed to. So I try to reach out to the public, and I must tell you that when the ABA agrees or decides to publish this book, you are really aiding and abetting, as we like to say in the law, and mm-hmm. giving us an opportunity to reach out not only to the bar, but hopefully to the public as well. Yeah, definitely. And I must say that the book will definitely, it helps to educate the public, and it's, it's a very interesting read. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Inner Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. We're speaking with Judge Block, the author of Crimes and Punishments, Entering the Mind of a Sentencing Judge. So to get back into it, in your reflections throughout the book, uh, you recount parts of your life experiences and your religious beliefs that could have had some impact on your subconscious and how that may have affected um, the sentences you handed out. Could you kind of talk about those, those um, aspects of your subconscious? Right, so a big part of the book, I sort of begged and borrowed from James Joyce a little bit, and I have a lot of my palisized paragraphs in there, uh, because uh, there's no question that uh, everybody brings to the bench whatever we do in life, our personal experiences, our life experiences, and they obviously have an impact upon how we conduct ourselves, and as judges, for sure, how we go about sentencing people. So we know the law. Objectively, I know what the sentencing guidelines are. I understand after all these years what the law is all about. But uh, I'm not necessarily 100% aware of the so-called subconscious, which is obviously at play. So I try to talk about areas where maybe uh, my life experiences could have shaped my decisions. Uh, I may or may not... um, be totally aware of how they affected them, but I try to do that in the book because I think it gives a human uh, touch to what uh, a human being is all about who's charged with this enormous responsibility of deciding how long, if at all, to incarcerate somebody. So it's a good example of that. I write down in Joyce's style, uh, whenever I have a drug sentence, uh, I always remember that my brother uh, took his life when he was high on LSD. Now, I uh, am aware of that, and I, uh, and I try to say that uh, it could have an effect upon my sentence. I don't know for sure, but I think that that openness is something which uh, puts a, a, a more human, realistic dynamic on what a sentencing judge is all about, what goes on in the sentencing judge's mind. I'll give you another example. In one of the chapters, uh, I had a very aggressive criminal defense lawyer, which I respect, but I think he crossed the line. He started to tell me I'm not God and things like that. Uh, And uh, probably most of my colleagues would have held him in contempt of court 
for the way he was misbehaving in court. And I didn't do it. But it sort of reminded me when I was a lawyer, I had a case uh, in Nassau County, a criminal case, and I took the judge on because I thought he did something which was absolutely wrong. Uh, in the middle of my cross-examination of a key witness, he decided to take an adjournment. He gave the government an opportunity to talk to the witness. The witness came back and, you know, started to change his testimony. And I called attention to it in front of the jury, and he threatened me with contempt. He probably had the right to, uh, you know, hold me in contempt. But when it came to me being the judge, and I had the situation that I had to deal with, I didn't hold him in contempt of court because I remembered when I was in that situation, having to represent a criminal defendant and the difficulty it is uh, that you have to go through the emotionality of all of that. And I, I, I think that that possible experience that I had when I was a lawyer uh, may have uh, influenced my decision not to hold this person in contempt who justifiably deserved it. So those are two examples, I think, mm. that are poignant examples of what enters the mind of a sentencing judge. Yeah. And it, it is definitely refreshing to read your words because you're very honest throughout the whole book. And we don't really hear a lot about judges questioning their their reasoning for sentencing. So it's uh, it's definitely one of a kind. Yeah, well, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, like you said, you do share a lot of your personal thoughts and feelings. Did you find it difficult to be so candid while you were writing the book? You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, it would be more difficult. Uh, but mm. uh, to some extent, when you get to be my age now and 25 years on the bench, it sort of frees you up a little bit because, you know, I don't have an agenda anymore. I'm not going to be on the Supreme Court. I'm not going to be in the circuit court. I do sit by designation, which is great. Uh, I'm not going to be appointed to chair this committee or that committee. Uh, and talking about the subconscious, a lot of my colleagues still, you know, are involved in that type of world, uh, and uh, whether they acknowledge it or not, you know, it's still important to them what people think of them, and of course, I want people to think well of me, but in a way, it frees me up uh, with the aging process and with the experience of being on the bench and no longer having, I think, even a subconscious agenda mm -hmm. to go to a different level in my profession, to uh, just uh, it's exhilarating in a way. I feel I can speak out now with a comfort level, with a maturity that maybe I didn't have in uh, prior years, certainly not when I first got on the bench. Uh, and um, it, it's cathartic in a way, but I think it's also hopefully uh, useful to the bench and the bar to have judges speak a little bit more like I speak. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I really want to focus a lot on the last chapter because I, it was it was a great read and it was very fascinating to me. It covers a drug importation case involving um, Chevelle Nesbeth. Am I saying that correctly? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Toward the end of the chapter, you wonder if you were subconsciously influenced by a book that you were reading or you had recently read, uh, which is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Could you kind of talk about how that book made you consider um, the collateral consequences of that case? And, yeah, just kind of go into that. Well, you know, one of the things that obviously influences us is the music we hear, the theater we go to, uh, the books we read. And it just so happened that I was reading Professor Alexander's book, which is a good polemic. I don't agree with everything, but I really think that she's right on the money in terms of a basic thesis. And uh, while I had this trial that was ongoing in front of me, uh, Cheryl Nesbitt, 
who was, he had a bad, she had a bad hair day. She was a wonderful person, young person. Unfortunately, she went to Jamaica. She came back accommodating her boyfriend and had drugs. And she was caught looking in a suitcase and she was uh, totally convicted. There's no question she was guilty, even though she went to trial. And of course, she tried when she cried when the jury came in with its guilty verdict. And I was just finishing Alexander's book, which talks about collateral consequences. And the thesis is that people who are incarcerated, they have enough problems just going through the criminal process system, being in jail or being the subject of a felony conviction, and they don't realize that when they are out of jail, when they've served their time, uh, they have these enormous collateral consequences to deal with, which basically imprisons them for the rest of their life. And Michelle Alexander pointed out that most of this falls harshly on African Americans historically, and they're still in prison. Therefore, the new Jim Crow is the title of a book. So I said, wow, uh, what are these collateral consequences that Michelle, Michelle Chevelle Nesbitt will face? And she's not going to be a teacher anymore. Uh, she's not going to be able to get food stamps anymore. She's not going to be able to have public housing anymore. And uh, she's not going to be able to vote for a while. She's not going to be able to drive a car for a while. And I said, wow, this is you know way more severe punishment than if she had to sit in jail for several months or even a year or two. And then I learned that the ABA had this wonderful study that I was not aware of where they identified country-wise, state-wise, over 50,000 collateral consequences. You can't be a game warden in Utah, for example. Wow. Me. And a lot of them are so silly, right? But they add up to really uh, increasing the prospects of recidivism. So it's no wonder that I think it's 80% of people that go back to jail are recidivists. And those who mm -hmm. get employment who don't have these collateral consequences that uh, impose upon them to afford 20% are recidivists. Most of them do not go back to jail. So there's no question that there's a real correlation between the collateral consequences that people face out of jail and the level of recidivism we have, which is in our country's just to reduce, not to enhance. So uh, when I read the ABA study, it kind of made it be, and Michelle Alexander's book, to take a hard look at Chevelle Nesbitt's collateral consequences, I did not put her in jail. And I did a few more things. I said that collateral consequences should be part of the sentencing mix under what we call Section 3553A of the Sentencing Guidelines. You consider the personal characteristics of the defendant as well as the crime. And uh, I did not put her in jail, put her on probation. Uh, I followed up afterwards, and she's doing well. Uh, she's not going to be a, a teacher, but she's studying psychology, and she's going to be a social worker. And uh, I think that I feel very good about the fact that contributing in a positive way to the rehabilitation of a person's life. Uh, so uh, I consider that to be the case that I'm most proud about. And the reason why it happened is because uh, my consciousness was raised by all these factors. Also, now pre-sentence reports by our probation department in the EDNY in New York has to alert the court to collateral consequences. And the government has to be alerted to it, and defense counsel have to be alerted to it, and I want to hear about it. So I think that of all the things I've had the opportunity and the privilege of doing as a judge, uh, this to me strikes me as maybe the best contribution I possibly have made in a small way to mm -hmm. our system of justice in our country.
Yeah. At the end, you say that it's you describe it as the most important case you ever handled. And I think it's powerful that you uh, end the book with that that case, too. So I, I really enjoyed that chapter a lot. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And the public will enjoy reading. It's not a technical chapter. It's for the public. I don't know. You know, I, you know the, the the problem is that the ADA does a wonderful job, but it's not in the marketing world like Random House and all these you know high end marketing people. So you don't have the same opportunity, perhaps, to get this out to the public. I don't think the New York Times Book Review reviews these books or whatever. Barnes and Noble doesn't stack them on the shelf. So it's frustrating. How can we get you know important information out that's more related, but really is for the public to be aware of? You do a good job as best as you can. We need more, I think, of that type of thing. And uh, the fact that you have these podcasts and are talking to me like this, uh, I really think is helpful. And I really commend you for taking the opportunity to do this. Oh, well, thank you. And on that note, kind of to wrap everything up, why do you think that this is such an important book for both lawyers and non-lawyers alike? I think I touched upon a lot of those reasons already, but uh, to sum it up, I guess uh, we have to have an awareness of what's out there, an awareness of how judges go about functioning, uh, an awareness certainly when it comes to sentencing. Uh, judges are appointed every day to the bench, and uh, the public should be very much concerned about how the judge on the trial level, the sentencing judge, is likely to uh, look upon rehabilitation, redemption, punishment. All these things are important factors, but you want a judge to be reasonable, to have a good moral uh, compass, and not to be off the wall, so to speak. And that's really what should be the focus when Congress really inquires into the qualifications of a district court judge, more important perhaps than a circuit court judge, because they just are a reviewing court, uh, but where the action starts is right here in the district court level. So I think the Republicans should have more awareness of all of this, and I think that that becomes the overarching reason why I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss today, Judge? Well, uh, I think I said it all. Hopefully, <laughs> it's probably as soon as I hang up. You know, just like when I was a lawyer, I always think of something else I could have said or should have said. But I, I, I have a good feeling that this was hopefully a constructive conversation we had. Yes, definitely. And where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Well, I did put a web page together. And it's Frederick Block, and it's spelled without the K at the end of Frederick, and with the K at the end of Block. So it's F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-B-L-O-C-K dot com. And the webpage will tell you, if you're curious all about me, I've written other books, I've written musical shows, and uh, I have this other part tonight. Uh, life in addition to being a judge. And, uh, you know, I'm really going to put a plug in for what's happening right now. One of the books I wrote called Race to Judgment is a pretty much a crime fiction novel that's being considered by a, a Fox studio right now to be made into a TV miniseries. Uh, so uh, I hope that happens. So it would oh, really wow. be cool. Yeah. So, you know, cross your fingers and put in a good word for me if you can with the Netflix. <laughs> well, congrats. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Judge Block. Uh, thank you for having me, and I look forward to seeing uh, what comes out of this conversation. Hopefully it will be productive. Yeah, definitely. You can purchase Crimes and Punishments at the ABA Web Store. Go to AmericanBar.org forward slash products. That's AmericanBar.org forward slash products.
If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.